Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Eric Wielenberg. Theistic approaches to morality, they're often presented as views in which God functions as the foundation or grounding for morality. But this description is misleading because it turns out that on those views, just as on mine, the foundation of morality is simply some collection of basic ethical facts. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Eric Wielenberg is an associate professor of philosophy at DePauw University in Indiana. He has published over a dozen journal articles on ethics and philosophy of religion, and has also written two books, God and the Reach of Reason and Value and Virtue in a Godless Universe. Dr. Wielenberg, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. First, Eric, would you share with us your faith journey? Like, were you raised religiously? Sure. Uh, I think my story or journey is pretty, uh, probably pretty typical for atheists or agnostics, which is I was raised religiously. I was raised in the Lutheran tradition. And as I grew up, started to have doubts. I think that's very common. I can remember being, you know, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that age range, sitting in Sunday school. And, as, you know, we were being told various things, sort of looking around at the other kids and wondering if I was, you know, are we all buying this? Am I the only one who uh, has doubts about uh, what we're being told here? <laughs> but, I, you know, I sort of was in the church for a while. And I, I remember, you know, when I was younger, I certainly at some point believed. I remember, you know, as a, as a, as a young kid sort of praying at night. But I, then I think the conviction or the belief sort of, sort of faded away as doubts arose. And I think my parents, they tried to raise me in the church, but then as I got older, as they did with many things, they sort of left it to me to decide, uh, you know, whether to stay or, or, you know, what to do uh, in that regard. And so I did, I sort of drifted away. Um, and then as I, you know, in college and later on, as I thought about it more, it did seem like, I guess, I didn't see compelling reasons to think there was a God of, of the sort, you know, posited by Christianity. And I think also the existence of the evil we find in our world, I guess one other aspect of it I would mention has to do with studying the philosophy of religion. So really in grad school is when I first started studying philosophy of religion seriously. And then toward the end of grad school, I spent a year at, at Notre Dame. Before that time, I would say I had sort of what you might describe as Richard Dawkins-type tendencies. Uh, in particular, as you're no doubt aware, Dawkins is not just skeptical of religious belief, but he thinks that it's pretty stupid and that people who have those sorts of beliefs are tend to be stupid. And he doesn't really hide that, that attitude. And so I would say, I, as a younger, less wise person, I had those sorts of tendencies. But studying philosophy of religion has really uh, beaten that out of me. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. When you read people like Aquinas and C.S. Lewis or contemporary thinkers, Alvin Plantinga, and you see what's going on in philosophy of religion these days, I think you can see that theism isn't for dummies. It's not a silly view. And that those thinkers, they're smarter than most of us, and they're certainly smarter than me. Though my atheism remains, the Dawkins-like tendencies have been lost through studying philosophy of religion. That's cool. That happened to me as well. It's very difficult to think that theists are stupid after reading people like Alvin Plantinga. Yes, exactly. Well, today, Eric, I want to speak to you specifically about a recent paper you published in Faith and Philosophy called In Defense of Non-Natural, Non-Theistic Moral Realism. One way to summarize your paper would be to say something like, God is not required for morality if we're going to posit something non-physical to explain why rape is objectively wrong. 
why not just posit the existence of moral brute facts rather than positing the existence of a tri-omni personal creator god as a brute fact, which is both more complicated and opens itself to all the usual criticisms of theistic ethics. So is that roughly what you're saying? Yes, that's a big part of it. At the heart of the paper is the idea that there are what I call basic ethical facts, and those are ethical facts that are, as you said, brute, meaning that they, they have no explanation or foundation outside of themselves. They're also substantive, that is to say they're not mere tautologies, they have content. And so another important conclusion I argue for in the paper is that when, when you examine the various God-based approaches to morality that have been presented, it turns out that they're committed to the existence of basic ethical facts. And I'd say that that's an important result because views of that sort, theistic approaches to morality, they're often presented as views in which God functions as the foundation or grounding for morality. But this description is misleading because it turns out that on those views, just as on mine, the foundation of morality is simply some collection of basic ethical facts. And that means that the defender of theistic ethics has no business criticizing a view like mine on the grounds that it posits brute moral facts, since we're really both in the same boat in that regard. My take on the history here is that there were some really serious criticisms of theistic ethics, and then a lot of theists thought that Robert Adams avoided some of those criticisms with his 1999 book, Finite and Infinite Goods. But then that account of theistic ethics is one that posits brute moral facts, which, of course, if you're, then if you're going to adopt that as your moral theory, you can't criticize others for positing brute moral facts. Yeah, I think that's right. And that, so that's the sort of case I'm trying to make. And so, at least in this paper, it's really not a criticism of Adam's theory. I try to criticize Adam's theory in other places, but here the point is simply there's a sort of weapon that theists often wield when they're trying to criticize non-theistic approaches to morality, where they'll say things like, well, look, you know, on these non-theistic approaches, you just have these ethical facts that are sort of floating and they have no foundation or grounding, and then... The idea is, on their view, it's all rooted in God. And so what I'm trying to bring out is that, in fact, no, I mean, both theories really posit these facts that you might say are floating in the sense that they have no external foundation or, or grounding, so that it's really misleading to say that on the theistic approach, God is the foundation for all of it. So I think a lot of people will be surprised, both Christians and non-Christians alike, that what is maybe the most popular account of theistic moral realism today, uh, which would be Adam's theory, posits brute moral facts that are not explained by God. Could you maybe give us a sketch of what Robert Adams' theory is? Now, there's a lot to the theory. Let me focus on just one part of it and say a bit about how I think that part of the theory is committed to these brute moral facts. So the theory has lots of parts. One part is Adams presents a sort of sophisticated version of divine command theory. And so the heart of it is the idea that human moral obligations are constituted by divine command. Now, when he's explaining that theory, or that part of his, of his theory, the divine command theory, he appeals to certain moral claims. And let me give you some examples. Here, here are three of them that he appeals to when he's, when he's trying to explicate his version of divine command theory. So one is, that only good social relationships can generate morally good reasons to obey commands. Another is that the better the character of the commander, the more reason there is to obey his or her commands. 
And then a third one is the better the command itself, the more reason there is to obey it. Now, he doesn't provide any grounding or explanation for these moral claims. Instead, he appeals to them in the course of trying to provide a foundation for other moral claims, claims about human moral obligations. So, in his theory, these claims are brute, uh, they have no explanation, and so it seems to me that they, uh, in his theory, are basic ethical facts. So what you get is, a, is an overall theory where some moral facts are explained in terms of God, but then you have these other moral facts that are more foundational, more fundamental, and they're not explained in terms of God, and so they seem to be basic ethical facts. But how does he really get away with that? If some ethical facts are not grounded in God, then why can't all ethical facts just be not grounded in God and there's no need to posit God as an explanation for moral facts? Well, that sums up the point that I'm trying to make. Now, I think from Adam's point of view, what's going on is that he's interested primarily in explicating goodness and moral obligation. And so his focus is on trying to explain facts about goodness and facts about moral obligation involving God. I'm not sure what Adam say about this point that I'm making, but it may be that he's not particularly concerned, actually, to ground all moral facts in God, but rather he's focused primarily on, on a particular set of moral facts, facts about goodness, facts about moral obligation. And who are some of the theistic philosophers who specifically refer to Adams as representing their view of morality? One prominent example would be William Lane Craig. It's interesting, Adams himself, to my knowledge, doesn't seem to really press the case against non-theistic ethics. In other words, he doesn't seem to press the case that you, that you actually need God yeah. as a foundation for morality, whereas William Craig, of course, does as one of his main theistic arguments. And so if you look at Craig's writings and, and debates, the way that Adams enters Craig's purview seems to be that Craig will often defer to Adams' theory as providing responses to various objections to theistic ethics. For example, right. the youth of her problem, which, which Adams discusses at length. So it does seem like many theistic uh, thinkers are aware of, of Adams' view, and they'll often sort of point to it as, okay, this, here's this objection, but it's been solved by Adams. Right. Well, now... All moral theories face big problems, otherwise philosophers wouldn't be so divided about which theory of realism or anti-realism is correct. But let's look at some potential problems for your theory of non-natural ethics. It seems like if Adam's theory of morality is true, then he has an account of how we could know moral facts, because he would say God told them to us or worked them into our brain chemistry, you know, kind of writing it on our hearts type of thing. But if your theory of morality is true, how could it be that we know what is right or wrong? How could it be that we know these brute moral facts? Yeah, this is a big question. So let me mention what I think is one of the best books out there that really addresses that issue head on. And that book is called Ethical Intuitionism. And it's by Michael Humer, who's a philosopher at the University of Colorado, Humor holds a non-naturalistic view of morality that I think is similar to mine, and he has lots of interesting stuff to say about moral epistemology. That's really the focus of that book. Now, my own work so far is focused primarily on, I guess we call the ontology of moral facts. That is, right. I've been interested uh, so far mainly in trying to figure out what sorts of things moral facts might be, and in particular whether their existence would require the existence of God. So I'm just sort of now getting into exploring how human beings might get knowledge of moral facts, in my view. But let me say a bit about my ideas so far. 
So as I see it, the toughest challenge here for a view like mine is explaining how our moral beliefs might match up with or correspond to the non-natural moral facts. Now, this is a challenge because presumably on a view like mine, there's no causal connection between the moral facts and moral beliefs. Right. And of course, on my view, there's no God to make sure that our moral beliefs correspond to the moral facts. So I think in light of that, the big question is, how might such a correlation occur? I actually have a paper on this coming out soon. The paper is called On the Evolutionary Debunking of Morality. Right. It's available on my website. Here's a, a summary of, of the core idea of that model I developed in that paper. And it goes something like this. We tend to believe that we're surrounded by a moral barrier so that there are certain things that shouldn't be done to us no matter what. For example, we tend to think we shouldn't be killed for entertainment, that we shouldn't be raped, uh, we shouldn't be exploited, and so on. Now, the terminology that gets used to express this basic idea certainly varies from one culture to another, but I think there's good evidence that these kinds of beliefs are pretty widespread. In the West, we tend to use the language of moral rights to talk about this sort of thing. Now, it seems to me that it's pretty easy to spin out a plausible evolutionary story about why being disposed to have beliefs like this might be part of human nature. So very briefly, if you have these sorts of beliefs, you'll be strongly motivated to resist being treated in ways that are disadvantageous for you from an evolutionary point of view. So you'll be, you know, you'll resist uh, being exploited and raped and so on, which evolutionarily speaking tends to be good. Okay, so that says a bit about the moral beliefs. Let me try to bring some moral facts into the picture. Well, and first, would you mind recommending some resources on reading up on that evolutionary account of morality? Like, I'm thinking of Street's article and Joyce's Evolution of Morality. Yeah, so in fact, this paper that I mentioned is really a response to those sorts of arguments. So there's, yeah, there's Sharon Street's paper. Joyce has a couple books, and then you have people like Michael Roos. These thinkers are all developing evolutionary explanations of human moral beliefs. Now, what's interesting is that they then try to use that to argue for a kind of moral skepticism. Mm-hmm. So the overall strategy of my paper is to resist those kinds of arguments. Right. And then along the way, I try to sketch at least a partial model of how human beings might, might get knowledge of certain moral facts. And then the, the trick is to connect it up with the rights themselves, the facts about moral rights. So there I'd say, when it comes to rights, there are lots of theories about the sort of foundation of rights. But one widely accepted idea is that if these rights, uh, moral rights, are real, then they supervene or depend on the presence of certain cognitive faculties. And so it turns out, according to those theories, that if you're sufficiently cognitively advanced to form the belief that you have these moral rights, then you actually have them. And this is because the moral rights will supervene or depend on the very cognitive faculties that generate your beliefs about rights. So in that way, the beliefs about rights could correspond to rights themselves, despite the absence of a causal connection between the rights and the beliefs, and despite the absence of a supernatural being. Now, that's sort of a teaser. That's the short version. And so the full version, and obviously many questions and so on will arise, uh, the full version of the, of the stories in that paper that I mentioned earlier. Well, that's cool. I look forward to reading that paper. That's a huge issue in my own moral thinking, is this Darwinian yeah. dilemma. Yes. Well, I want to ask you a question about your book, Value and Virtue in a Godless Universe. You give sure. in that book a list of activities that you think have intrinsic value 
and here I'll quote you, quote, my list would include falling in love, engaging in intellectually stimulating activity, being creative, experiencing pleasure, and teaching. And how can I justify my list of intrinsically worthwhile activities? I am afraid I have no philosophical proof, but many of the things we know are such that we cannot give proof. Claims about what is intrinsically good are the axioms of ethical theory. They are the starting points, the first principles. As such, they are unlikely to be the sorts of things that can be proved. Nevertheless, it is perfectly consistent to say that some activities are intrinsically valuable and that we know what some of them are. End quote. But this seems no different than Alvin Plantiga saying, I know some things about God in a properly basic way, such as God created this, or it seems to me God is reconciling humanity to himself. I have no philosophical proof for this, but we know many things for which we cannot give proof. Such claims are the starting points, the first principles. Nevertheless, it is perfectly consistent for me to say that God does these things and that we know it. Why would we take your argument about morality any more seriously than Plantinga's argument about God? Yeah, a couple things. One is Plantinga's argument is worth taking seriously in the sense that it's, it's worth considering and uh, thinking, about what he has, thinking about what he has to say. And in fact, there actually are certain parallels. I think your question is good and that it brings out that there's certain parallels between my approach and Plantinga's, which is Plantinga, he is trying to defend the idea that belief in God can be properly basic so that some people can know that God exists in a sort of direct way, even if they have no argument or proof uh -huh. for that conclusion. And that's the same sort of case I'm trying to make with at least some moral claims. Not all, not all of them, but sort of these foundational ones. So it's a sort of, you know, hey, Wielenberg, where do you get off making that case, but also rejecting planning his case. So right. I do think it's crucial to see that if there aren't some things that can be known, even though we can't prove them, some things that we know simply because they're obviously true, then it seems to me that knowledge of any sort is going to be impossible. Without some starting points, we can't get anywhere. So I say that the claims, for example, that pain is intrinsically bad or that love is intrinsically good are obviously true and can be known even if they can't be proven. Plantinga says something similar about the claim that God exists. So what's the difference between my claims and Plantinga's? I'd say there are two differences. First, the intrinsic badness of pain seems obvious to me. The existence of God doesn't. Sort of a, a mundane point. Now, perhaps there are people out there to whom it isn't obvious that pain is intrinsically bad. Perhaps there are even people out there to whom it isn't obvious that contradictions can't be true. Fair enough. I mean, each of us simply has to start with how things seem to us. However, I think more can be said, which is this. As Plantinga himself acknowledges, we sometimes have defeaters or reason to doubt claims that seem obviously true to us. So this idea that you can know something simply because it's sort of obviously true, that doesn't imply that that belief can't be thrown into doubt or, or overridden by some other sort of consideration. So it's not a, um, a claim about infallibility. And in cases of that sort, we lose our warrant for believing the defeated claim. And so in the case of the claim that God exists, I think there actually are defeaters. That's where, obviously, planning and I disagree. For example, I think the nature and distribution of the evil we find in the world is a defeater for the belief that a perfect God exists. So certain fundamental moral claims seem obviously true to me, and as far as I can see, there aren't any defeaters for such claims. Uh, by contrast, the claim that God exists doesn't seem obviously true to me, and in any case, I think there actually are defeaters for that claim. Right, and so there are lots of defeaters we might think of for the 
existence of uh, the god of classical theism. And here, here we could list all the usual atheistic arguments about evil and divine sure. hiddenness and the demographics of theism and the potential incoherence of classical theism. Uh, whereas it's more difficult to think of a defeater for the claim that pain is intrinsically bad. That's the idea. And, I mean, of course, one feature of my view is it does suggest a strategy for objecting, which is, okay, to try to find a defeater. And so there, I mean, that's in fact why a lot of my work in ethics is sort of defensive, I'm really not in the business of trying to prove these foundational moral claims, because I just don't know how that would go. And so my strategy is more along the lines of, well, they seem right to me. What are the objections? Let's try to respond to those. And in fact, I mean, I think there you might even see a bit of a parallel with planning, because planning, I think, I think if you look at his body of work, there actually isn't all that much in the way of trying to provide these decisive arguments for God's existence. Yeah. You do get the sense that it seems right to him, and then he's trying to defend the view against various sorts of objections. Right. Now, in the debate over the existence of God, and then also in the debate over the existence of moral values, in each debate, who do you think carries the burden of proof? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess in the debate over moral values, to me, it does seem that the common sense view is that, you know, certain things are right and wrong in, in a robust way. So that some, some sort of moral realism, to me, does seem to be the natural starting point. In the case of God, as I say, to me, the existence of God doesn't seem true, so it doesn't seem to carry that sort of prima facie plausibility. So I guess in the, in the debate about the existence of God, it's actually unclear to me where the burden of proof lies. And, and in fact, that, of course, I guess is one of, the, uh, one of the contested issues. Well, but if you're saying that moral realism would be the default position because it's the common sense view, I mean, pretty obviously in the history of the world, the common sense view about God is that, you know, a, some kind of supernatural being or beings exist. Mm-hmm. I would say the common sense view, that doesn't mean it's the most popular view historically. It's not as poll people and find out what most people believe. It actually is more, you start with the way things seem to you. So I think you're right that if it's a question of what's the most popular belief, then maybe moral realism and theism historically have been the most popular. But if it's a question of me as an individual philosopher, when I'm trying to think these things through, there, moral real realism to me seems more plausible than the existence of God does. However, planning it clearly sees things differently. And so I think it may be perfectly reasonable for planning a, given the way things seem to him, to approach the debate about the existence of God in something like the way I'm approaching the debate about morality. So again, that's why I think it's actually hard to say, is there some rule about who is the burden of proof? I'm not actually sure that there is. So I'll give you a chance to argue against the approach to burden of proof that seems most intuitive to me at the moment, and that would be okay. whoever's making the positive existence claim has mm -hmm. the burden of proof, right? And so if somebody says the moon exists, they have the burden of proof to provide evidence for the existence of the moon, and then, well, it turns out that evidence is very easy to come by. But then when you say falling in love has intrinsic value, mm -hmm. the burden of proof would be on the person who's claiming that, and it's, it's difficult to think of what evidence one could provide for that. And same with the existence of a tri-omni-creator god. One question that arises is just, I mean, you mentioned the moon, but, you know, if, you know, suppose you and I are sitting at a table and there's a cup on the table, we can both see it. And I say, well, look, there's a cup here. <laughs> I guess I'm wondering if there's a, uh, a burden of proof there, or is it, would you say in that case, it's just that it's so easy to provide evidence, or I just say, look, don't you see the cup? 
I would say two things. I would say, one, it's pretty easy to provide something that we would both consider significant evidence for the existence of the cup. But then also I would say, and I think this causes a lot of confusion in the debate over the burden of proof, I would say that most of the time we don't make that our battle. I mean, I just am not very interested in yeah. demonstrating to you that the cup is, exists or that other minds exist. And so the reason that I don't enter that debate is not because I don't have the burden of proof, but because I just don't care about arguing about that issue. Okay. Presumably it's because the existence of the cup is just obvious to both of us. Well, not even that. It's just, I mean, there are some things that are not very obvious, but I'm not going to you know, I have limited time in my life. I'm not going to dedicate yeah. my life to demonstrating the truth of general relativity. That's somebody else's battle. Uh, and I'm just, even though I accept that, I'm not going to make that my battle because uh, I don't have time to be an expert on everything. It, even though I think that the burden of proof is on somebody who, is, who like me, asserts that general relativity is a, a generally very plausible theory of the universe. In order to argue persuasively against this sort of general principle. I mean, I'd have to think about this more, but I guess I'm wondering where, I mean, there there may be these sort of pragmatic reasons about why, you know, who wants to argue about whether there's a cup here and lots of things that you just don't want to spend your time arguing about. I guess I'm wondering whether there would be cases where, you know, we're both outside and it, it's just pouring rain. <laughs> and if someone comes along and denies the existence of rain, in a case like that, I'm actually inclined to say that, gee, maybe that's the person who's got the burden of, of making, the, making the argument. So given a certain epistemic situations, it might actually be that, look, the existence of something is just so obvious that if I you know, were to, in a sort of inane way, assert, hey, it's raining, <laughs> I'm not sure I carry much of a burden there. And so I'm actually wondering whether that rule is, you know, holds as a, as a general principle Okay, cool. Well, I think that gives people at least two approaches to burden of proof uh, that they can think about. But I'd like to return to your work. Eric, it seems to me that your ideas about morality lie beyond the usual paradigms of naturalism versus supernaturalism and might fall into a category we would call just non-naturalism. So, mm -hmm. well, first of all, what is non-naturalism? And then how is non-naturalism any better off ontologically or epistemologically than supernaturalism? When it comes to morality, I think that naturalism and supernaturalism, at least on their face, they actually have something in common, which is that they're both presented as reductive theories of morality, where the basic idea is to say, we've got a puzzling category, morality, moral facts. And if we think that First of all, there are moral facts. What sort of a thing are they? How do they fit into the universe? And naturalism and supernaturalism, in a way, what they're both trying to do, actually, is demystify moral facts. And so the naturalist is trying to say, typically, something like, well, these moral facts, they actually just turn out to be more familiar natural facts that can be studied by empirical science, and so there's nothing weird or mysterious about them. Whereas the supernaturalist, often presents his theory or her theory as making a similar kind of case, except they'll want to say, well, these moral facts, they turn out to be facts about God or about some supernatural entity or some relation to God. And so in both cases, what they're trying to do is say, look, these moral facts are really just this other kind of fact. And if we can understand that other kind of fact, then the sort of mystery and weirdness of, of morality seems to go away. Then non-naturalism is the non-reductive view. And 
that's the view that says, look, these moral facts are just their own kind of thing. They can't be reduced to some other kind of fact. They're a fundamental category of fact. With the exception of Robert Adams' view of morality, which doesn't quite reduce everything. <laughs> yeah, supernaturalism is typically billed as this reductive view. But again, I mean, the case I'm making is that if you get into the details and nitty-gritty of some of those theories, they're actually only partially reductive, where they reduce mm-hmm. some of the moral facts, but then there's this sort of leftover <laughs> residue. Right. Metaphysical residue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> gunk. Moral gunk that can't be uh, cleaned up. We just hate things that can't be explained. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, the main advantage of non-naturalism over supernaturalism is actually ontological, so that if the main argument of my faith and philosophy paper is right, then both naturalism and supernaturalism are committed to the existence of what I call the basic ethical facts. Mm-hmm. But of course, supernaturalism is also committed to the existence of God. So, But in my view, there's good reason to be skeptical of the existence of God. And so that's a disadvantage for supernaturalism, a disadvantage that my view lacks. So really, it's like both views, if I'm right, are committed to these basic ethical facts, but then the supernaturalist view is also committed to the existence of God. And so all the troubles about that are inherited by the supernaturalist approach. Right. Now, epistemologically, not sure actually where it breaks there. I guess, actually, it seems to me that anybody who thinks there are moral facts, you know, whatever camp you're in, whatever realist camp you're in, is going to have some explaining to do. So I guess, again, when it comes to non-naturalism, I I would sort of point to Humer's book, Ethical Intuitionism, definitely worth considering. And again, I'm trying to work out my own theory in that area. And so there, again, I'd point to that paper I mentioned before on the evolutionary debunking of morality. Well, and it's important to note that the evolutionary dilemma for ethical knowledge applies just as much to the naturalist as to the non-naturalist. Yeah, that's, that's right. Well, Eric, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Luke, thanks a lot. I do appreciate it. I definitely appreciate the opportunity to talk about my ideas. So thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.